welcome to the Broadway Binge Podcast. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Hannah. And we are going to tell you the history of American musical theater by reviewing and ranking all of the most important musicals from Showboat to today. Today's episode is about Porgy and Bess. Um, are you a big Porgy and Bess fan, Hannah? Um, I would say I'm a Porgy and Bess fan. I wouldn't say I'm a Porgy and Bess super fan, uh, but I've seen the show. Uh, I love the music. Excited to get to it, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually had never seen or heard anything of Porky and Bess other than the song Summertime, obviously. Um, I think that's until... true for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now I did watch it. I watched a 1993 TV movie uh, version of it. Um, it's based on, there was a 1986 Glyndebourne Festival version um, in London, and they just took that stage version, made a movie, and used the actual London soundtrack, and they lip-synced to it to make the TV Interesting. movie. So. I did not know that. Yeah, so that was the one that I watched. Uh, but first, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Porgy and Bess. Great. It was um, our first entry on the list by the Gershwins. I'll talk about the Gershwins in more detail in a second. Uh, but the music was by George Gershwin, the... Uh, libretto and lyrics were uh, a, a combination of George's older brother Ira Gershwin and also mm-hmm. DuBose Hayward. And DuBose Hayward was the writer of the novel Porgy in 1925. DuBose Hayward himself adapted Porgy into a play in 1927, and then in 1935, um, the sort of musical theater opera version was uh, written again with the assistance of DuBose Hayward. Um, mm-hmm who was a white man and writing in black dialect. That was sort of his contribution to this, uh, which has its issues. Yeah, well, that's just great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so before we, I, I guess before we discuss the problems with uh, sure. Corgi and Bess, um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the Gershwins. Um, great, great, great. Because they were very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, extremely important in musical theater. So uh, George Gershwin, the writer of the music for this, um, you might know him as also having written the music of Rhapsody in Blue. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one of his uh, big things. He was born Jacob Gershevitz, the second son of Morris Gershevitz, who was a (laughs) Russian immigrant. Um, And he changes himself from Jacob Gershevitz to George Gershwin, uh, which doesn't sound that much less Jewish, so I don't know how effective he was. um, (laughs) But... You know, you gotta try. I think Irving Berlin did a better job of making up a, a non-Jewish name. sounding name. Yeah. Well. Uh, so he started out on uh, Tin Pan Alley. He was a piano player for other people's music. He started writing his own Tin Pan Alley music, just sort of you know like songs, sheet music that would then get sold all over the place. Um, eventually, he, you know, was known to be a pretty good writer on Tin Pan Alley. So he left Tin Pan Alley to go to Broadway. Uh, wrote the music for five editions of George White's Scandals, which is sort of like a knockoff version of the Ziegfeld Follies. Um, so he was doing that sort of thing, started writing his own musical comedies. And relative to the other people, like uh, we talked about Cole Porter last week with Anything Goes, um, and uh, sort of relative to the other people writing musical comedy, his music was a little, a lot more complicated, a lot more bluesy, a lot more jazzy, sort of less light, airy, Tin Pan Alley stuff and more um, complex bluesy stuff. I mean, if you've heard Rhapsody in Blue, um, you know that's that's the guy we're talking about right now. Sure. Um, and because Porgy and Bess is so completely and utterly different from everything else that the Gershwins ever wrote, 
Um, and other people did lyrics for George other than his brother Ira, but his brother Ira did uh, lyrics for a lot of his big things. So I just want to play a couple uh, brief clips. This is um, a little clip of the song Fascinating Rhythm from his musical Lady Be Good. And this is sort of an example of an ordinary uh, George Gershwin song. So here you go. Fascinate rhythm, you got me on the go. Fascinate rhythm. What a mess you're making, the neighbors wanna know why I'm always shaking. This morning I get up with the sun to find at night no work has been done. Great. Um, and before we talk a little bit more, I'll also play a little clip of I Got Rhythm, sung by Ethel Merman. Um, this was from the show Girl Crazy, which was uh, probably their, their biggest hit. Gershwin's biggest hit and very much a traditional musical, Ethel Merman's introduction to Broadway. We talked a bit about it last week, but here you go, a little snip of I Got Rhythm. I got rhythm, I got music, I got All right, so... Great. I just want to say, if you um, enjoy that song, you should listen to Art Tatum's piano version of it. It's truly exceptional. As the jazz geek member of this podcasting team, take it away, Jeremy. Art Tatum. All right. Yeah, um, great, also, great, great version. Um, just, just so everyone knows, behind the scenes, when I say we're playing a clip of the song for you, we're not actually playing it in real life. I add that in later. So what happens is I just sing a little snippet of the song to fill time. So. It's deeply entertaining. Uh, maybe maybe someday we'll, we'll let you in on the secret and you get to get to hear a little bit of that. Great. It has to be earned, though, I think. It has to be earned. Um, all right. So I guess <laughs> at this point, um, we turn to Porky and Bess. So at this point, he's already written Great. Rhapsody in Blue. Gershwin has already been sort of trying to remake himself as a more serious uh, musician. And he decides that he wants to combine opera with musical theater. For, I don't know if we've actually mentioned it yet. Porgy and Bess is an opera. Um, it's, an it's an opera. opera. It's an opera. It's also a musical. It's a combination of musical and opera that confused a lot of people at the time and still confuses them uh, to this day. And um, mm. here's a quote, actually, from George Gershwin about why he wrote it the way he did. It, it's sort of an opera with songs. And uh, for those who don't know, operas don't have what's considered songs. A song is like sort of what you would hear on the radio in America. It's a discrete thing, you know, chorus verses. An opera is more, you know, sung through. Things flow from one to the other. All of the spoken dialogue is uh, sung. There is no spoken dialogue. They just sort of like sing it, chant it a little bit. And those are called recitatives. And Porgy and Beth does that. have. Yeah. And um, Porgy and Bess was written with recitatives. So none of the dialogue was spoken. Right. Um, actually, that's not true. The dialogue by the white characters is spoken, but none of the dialogue by the black characters was uh, spoken, which is an interesting uh. Uh, little touch. But in recent, um, in a lot of sort of musical theater-ified versions of Porgy and Bess, which are trying to appeal more to traditional Broadway audiences, they get rid of the recitatives and just make it spoken dialogue. Um, but here's a quote from George Gershwin about why he did what he did with this song. He said, it is true that I have written songs for Porgy and Bess because without song, it could be neither theater nor entertaining. Um, so 
basically he didn't think that uh, opera as it stood was entertaining, and he wanted to write an opera that entertained the masses. Um, and um, I guess I'll do a little bit more of the history of the show. Um, sure. Opened up in 1935. His full score was really long, three hours or four hours long. Um, after the Boston tryouts, they cut 45 minutes of it, and it was still really long. It was not a hit. Um, it did okay. Um, the New York Times didn't really know what to do with it. They actually sent a the- their usual theater critic and their usual uh, music critic because sort of they just didn't know like what kind of like they didn't know if was this going to be an opera, was going to be musical theater. So their their musical theater critic at the time was named Brooks Atkinson. Remember the same Brooks Atkinson was a a huge deal New York Times uh, theater critic, and he reviewed like all of the shows we're going to be talking about for a while. Um, and his uh, Brooks Atkinson said about the recitatives, quote, why commonplace remarks that carry no emotion have to be made in a chanting monotone is a problem I cannot fathom. Turning Porgy into an opera has resulted in a deluge of casual remarks that have to be thoughtfully intoned and that amazingly impede the action, end quote. So he didn't like it. Uh, and neither did the music critic. So no one liked Porgy and Bess. Uh-huh. Fascinating. Um, and I guess, so later on, they revived it in 1942 as a Broadway musical. It was shorter, no more recitatives, all the dialogue was spoken. That was, like, kind of a hit. The 1942 version was, like, what people thought was Porgy and Bess for a while. Um, and it wasn't until 1976, um, the Houston Grand Opera put a full version of the show on. They advertised it as the complete version, added back the 45 minutes of material that Gershwin had cut. So this was, like, a four-hour, like, mega opera with recitatives. And it was, a, it was a massive hit. And now when you see Porgy and Bess most often, it's opera companies putting it on, mm. um, which was not the way Gershwin originally intended. But, like, opera companies put it on. It's part of the opera repertoire. Um, the Metropolitan Opera in New York does it now, um, and they do, like, full opera version. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there are separate people. Like, there's a 2011 uh, Broadway version directed by Diane Paulus with Audra McDonald. Um, and revised by Pulitzer right. Prize. Is it Pulitzer or Pulitzer? I think it's actually Pulitzer I recently discovered, but okay. who can say? Good, good. Um, so revised by Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Suzanne, uh, Susan Laurie Parks. Mm. Um, and I'll just read a little bit of the program note by Parks, who is a black woman. Um, right. And she says in the program, while the original opera triumphs on many levels, I feel the writing sometimes suffers from what I call a shortcoming of understanding. In DeBose and Dorothy Hayward, Dorothy Hayward was DeBose's wife, and she covered Anyway, back to the quote. In DeBose and Dorothy Hayward and the Gershwin's original, there's a lot of love and a lot of effort made to understand the people of Catfish Road. In turn, I've got love and respect for their work, but in some ways, I feel it falls short of the creation of fully realized characters. Now, one could see their depiction of African-American culture as racist, or one could see it as I see it, a problem of dramaturgy, end quote. Mm. And so the sort of the goal of the 2011 version was to rehabilitate the show and to sort of like sniff out racist moments and improve the dialect so it wasn't as much of like a caricature and sort of make it mm-hmm. just like a story about like a man and a woman named Porky and Bess. Um, mm-hmm. And it was pretty well received. It got good reviews, won some Tonys. So um, that's sort of the history of the production history of Porky and Bess. Um, and now we can dive into the show itself. First, any, do you have any thoughts about any of that we've discussed so far? Sure. I mean, I think I think it's really interesting, the program note by Susan Laurie Parks. Um, I'm glad you brought that into the, the discussion. Um, 
yeah, I did not see that production. My family saw it. They talked a lot about it a lot with me. Um, I think that's a super generous note <laughs> by Susie, uh, Susan Laurie Parks. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's helpful to sort of uh, foreground talking about, I don't know, that this, this show and the place it holds and, uh, like, several of the shows we've talked about so far from this early period. Like, a lot of it is tied up in you know, uh, old racist theatrical stereotypes. Um, I mean, it's, it's when you think Porgy and Bass, it's a show that's always, uh, done, although there have been attempts to not do it with an all black cast, um, in playing the black roles. Uh, I just read about that on Wikipedia today, but, um, oh, wow. yeah, I know, but, and Gershwin actually shut it down to his credit. Um, but you know, it's great, creates, creates roles for actors of color, but also, uh, as you've outlined, like is plagued by, uh, issues surrounding race. Um, so that's something I'm thinking about coming into this discussion. Um, also when I think of Porgy and Bess, it's impossible for me to not think of Summertime. Uh, for years that was just a song I loved. I will say I love Fantasia's version of that song. It's worth listening to <laughs> viewers. Oh, yeah. um, Fantasia Barino, season three, American Idol. Look it yeah, up on YouTube. Just listen to her version of Summertime because it, it just kicks, it just kicks ass. Um, but uh, I did not know that was a song from Porgy and Bess uh, for a long time. Uh, so I think a lot of people, you said early, like that just was a song you knew. I think a lot of people encounter this show not knowing uh, that it's a folk opera. <laughs> um, although uh, there is a, a funny quote. Um, I don't know who said this, but uh, someone, uh, one of the critics reviewing it at the time said it's supposed to be a folklore opera, mm. but the critics said it's actually fake lore. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's so cruel. <laughs> and so that actually, that goes um, into a lot of the criticism of the sure. show at the time. And some of this criticism exists to the present day, but it was especially prevalent when the show originally came out. Because mm. this wasn't something that took place. So I guess we actually haven't talked about what the show's about at all. So, sure, we'll get there. Uh, quickly, it's, a, it's about, um, it takes place um, in a fictional... Uh, sort of like tenement ghetto in uh, I think the Charleston, South Carolina area. Charleston, South Carolina, right now, North Carolina. I'm, I'm just messing everything up. Uh, so it takes place around there. Um, and it's a black neighborhood. Um, a lot of the people are fishermen um, or stevedores. So they sort of load ships. Um, a lot of poverty going on. They play dice every night for fun. The men play dice. Uh, Porgy is a crippled beggar. In the original version, he had to get everywhere on a donkey-drawn cart. In more modern versions, he gets to walk around on crutches, which is you know much more economical for uh, theater companies putting on the show. And um, he falls in love with Bess, who is the uh, cocaine-addicted girlfriend. We assume it's cocaine. They call it happy dust. Um, cocaine-addicted girlfriend of this sort of local strongman tough. The strongman guy kills uh, another man after dice, leaves town, Porgy takes in Bess, gets her clean, they fall in love, they're in love, her cocaine dealer keeps trying to get her back um, on cocaine, she says no, um, later on, the uh, her ex-boyfriend comes back into town, probably rapes her, we'll talk about that later, um, and then she gets addicted to cocaine again and goes to New York with the dealer, oh, and Porgy kills her ex-boyfriend and he's in jail for a day and then he comes back out of jail but she's gone so he goes after her in new york and it's assumed that she's probably gonna like become a prostitute and he's probably gonna die so that's porgy and bess that's porgy and bess and people at the time 
Black audiences at the time did not like it because this was not a period piece. This was not like 1800s. It was sort of saying like, hey, this is what the black experience is like right now in, you know, 1932. And then all these people in the audience were sitting there and they're like, no, this is like, what is, what's this horrible dialect? Like, what are these terrible caricatures? This is like not at all accurate. Um, right. And who are you guys? Who are you, Gershwin and Dubose Hayward, to, to say that this is what our lives are like? I mean, we're here in New York. We're here in Harlem. You know, it's like, like, like we are not like this. And right. so it was um, really disliked at the time. A lot of that has faded over uh, the decades because now no one would mistake Porgy and Bess for being something that is sort of takes place in the present day. So people sort of see it as like, oh, this is a period piece about sure. South Carolina in the 1930s. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's more accurate than it used to be about South Carolina in the 30s. It's just that we don't know as much what South Carolina was like in the 30s. So we kind of just trust Porgy and Bess more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. It's an interesting point. I mean, I think it gets back to what you said about Susan Laurie Parks's criticism that there was simply like a lack of dramaturgy, which is just a really polite way of saying that it was racist. Um, Yeah, but I mean, I think I think that that's, uh, uh, you know, I I I think she like encapsulates the argument pretty well by pointing out uh, the failure to accurately reflect the experience of of black people in the Carolinas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. What I'm thinking about with this show, Jeremy, is how it's such a weird and unlikely mashup, right? Like, we have this sort of high opera form, uh, but sort of attempting to be folksy, uh, you know, written by a bunch of white people um, attempting to get inside this black experience. Um, And it truly makes no sense, right, when you describe it that way. Um, But I'm thinking about the other shows we've talked about so far and how it seems like a lot of these shows that stick with us or uh we deem still important are shows that do something like that that are just totally uh nonsensical for the time or going against the grain in a way that's really interesting and so it makes me wonder like if that's part of why we keep returning to porgy and Bess, you know is it's like this truly unlikely amalgamation of genres and uh theatrical forms for all yeah, its and issues it's sort of a snapshot know? of how people felt at the time i think yeah is so valuable Whereas a show like Girl Crazy, which is probably uh, the Gershwin's most, you know, lasting show. other, But they had a ton of shows that sort of sure. haven't lasted because they're just ordinary musical comedies. There's nothing – Watson doesn't tell us as much about the time. And right. they just weren't as audacious. Um, and, yeah, well, the idea of a snapshot yeah. makes me think of uh, a Showboat, too. I think that's something – and Anything Goes. That's something we talked about with both of those uh, shows was like, you know – for all their issues, um, which are many, um, they do serve as like a a sort of a a snapshot of a moment in time. And I think that's part of why we continue to return to them, uh, is like, we find that source material to continue to be tricky and interesting. And, uh, the Gershwins, I mean, whether or not, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what we can say about like, whether we think uh, this is you know, warranted or not, but the Gershwins, they were Jewish. They mm-hmm. sort of lived on the outside of American society, and they really were trying very hard with this show um, to write a show that would be you know, like really great for black actors. And um, they, it was written into the, the rights of the show that you weren't allowed to put on this show with any white actors other than the couple of white characters there right. are. There's like a, a villainous white cop, a villainous white lawyer. 
And it's actually very jarring in the versions of the rest of the teams where everyone is singing all the dialogue. It's very musical. And they come in and they're just talking. And you see there's, there's no music in their lives. I mean, the Gershwins uh, were really trying hard um, sure. to, to try to be representative. And, I mean, like, they didn't totally succeed. I don't know how much they succeeded at all. Uh, but right. they were trying. And they sort of, um, this is actually kind of interesting. He used his, George Gershwin used his Jewish roots mm-hmm. to um, sort of, he, he wove those throughout the show. There's one song called It Ain't Necessarily So, which is sung by the drug dealer, um, whether it's Picnic, and he's basically saying how the Bible, the stories in the Bible aren't necessarily so. He says it ain't necessarily so each to start each verse and then goes into some story in the Bible and how it might not be necessarily so. And mm. uh, the music to that is it ain't necessarily so. I don't know if you recognize that melody. That's the same melody from Barhu Ed Adonai Hambora. Oh man, Jeremy, that's great. I did not know any of that. I didn't come up with the song, I saw it on Wikipedia. But it's the exact right. same. So for those who don't know, Han- well, so Hannah and I are both Jewish. But basically, We're both Jewish. whenever <laughs> a, yeah, at, at a Jewish, uh, when you're at services and there's about to be a Torah reading, you introduce it um, with this Aliyah blessing, uh, Barhu Ed Adonai Hambora. And oh, God, and I have really love that. And... <laughs> huh. Yeah. Good one. Right. Um, oh, man. We got real Jewish just and, now. It's fine. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it is, it's similar because you start with that. You say, Barhuet Adonai Hamburak. Then the whole group comes together and repeats a, a similar blessing back at you with the exact same tune. And then you say a story from the Bible in, in Hebrew. And it ain't necessarily so. Sport and Life, which is the guy's name, says, it ain't necessarily so. And then the whole congregation says back to him, it ain't necessarily so. And then in a sort of similar chanting tune, he tells a story from the Bible. So it's it's literally like a Jewish prayer ceremony. Fascinating. Oh, man, this is so interesting, Jeremy, because um, I guess I, I I knew Gershwin was Jewish, but I, I'd sort of forgotten like the, the Russian immigrant aspect of his life. Uh, my ancestry entirely on my mom's side is all Russian immigrants who similarly like changed their name to sound less Jewish. Um, and it's interesting, like, thinking about, you know, certainly, like, a misappropriation of uh, the experience of African-American people as, uh, you know, sort of a Jewish experience. But it is, it's an interesting mashup, I guess. Uh, and I haven't, I haven't thought of it in those terms before. Um, so, yeah, it's, like, an interesting it, I mean, it's frame. easy to think of. Yeah. It's, it's easy to think of Jews in New York as being, like, the ultimate insiders today. But especially at the time, right. like... It, like well, that—that sure. that yeah. is that's largely true today. But in the in like the 1910s, 1920s, they were still becoming the inside. It was like largely as a result of people like Gershwin that you now have this reputation of like New York being a town where like the Jews have like have their way of things. You know, like sure. at the time, like he was just this Russian immigrant uh, with not much money, just playing piano to make a buck. So he sort of yeah. viewed himself as an outsider, and he personally—I um, don't know as much about Ira. All like the literature is about George. George sort of personally identified. Uh, with black people in New York as sort of being outsiders. And I think he was trying to speak for them, whether or not he should have. Um, that's a debate. But he was, he was sort of no. trying to say I would say no. Yeah, but... <laughs> yeah. let, let's, but... let's, let's agree. Like, no, you shouldn't speak for another race. But, yeah, that's um, a bad idea. But he thought at the time, like, we are all outsiders. And because I have this mouthpiece, because people listen to my music, I will speak for those who cannot. That was what his sharp was. Yeah. yeah, no, 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 I mean, uh, yeah, heard. Um, 
Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I'm thinking about, uh, historically, like, other works of art from that period that sort of, like, reappropriated different, um, immigrant experiences or experiences of, like, impoverished communities. Um, I feel like there's got to be other examples, right? I'm sure there are. We didn't, we didn't do our research. We didn't do our research, but it is interesting to think, to, to frame, frame the show that way, for sure. I have not thought of it in those terms. Yeah. Oh, actually, I, I do have to say, I did do my research. I actually Jeremy did this research. I, yeah. I purchased a, a book called, it's, it's Showtime by Larry Stemple, A History of the Broadway Musical Theater. That's where I'm getting a lot of my fun facts. So uh, Great. just so you know, yeah. um, you're, getting, you're getting more from this podcast than you would by just reading the Wikipedia entry. So Right, right. Um, we're trying to have the answer here. Yeah. yeah. Remember that. You, you need right. us. Without us, you'd have to go out and buy your own book by Larry Stemple. Right. And then where would you be? Yeah. All right, let's get like into the show. Let's bucks. get into the show. <laughs> yeah. Great. We've been talking for a while, I guess. Uh, yeah, so yeah. it starts with summertime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, man, what a good start. What a good start. Yeah, amazing such, song. Such a good song. Yeah, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on that song, I think, and all of the different versions of that song. Um, I would say, personally, I'd be interested to hear your uh, favorites as well. I would say uh, I really love the Janis Joplin version. Um, I grew up listening to that, and I grew up listening to the Fantasia Barino version, which you just have to listen to if you haven't, uh, whatever your thoughts are on Fantasia Barino. Sidebar, I saw Fantasia in the color purple, um, at this point, almost a decade ago, yep, mm -hmm. but, you know, that's a story for another day. Um, but her version of Summertime is just, it's just really good. Um, so yeah, what are what are your favorite, favorite versions of Summertime, Jeremy? I mean, mine would have to probably be Fantasia, because I know I'd heard the song before Fantasia sang it all those years ago, but, like, I couldn't tell you where. Um, when she sang it, I mean, it was early on in season three of American Idol, from that point on, it was just, like, she was the winner. Like, it was, it was obvious. Right. Um, I've heard the Audrey McDonald, or, yeah, Audrey McDonald, well, she's not the main person who sings it, because it's actually a character, I don't even remember the character's name, it's not Bess at first. Bess does sing the song later on when... The original character who sings at the beginning of the show is dead and has and Bess is taking care of her baby. Right. Um, so I've I've heard I'm I've heard it from the, the name new of this character. It's like Helen? I don't know. Clara. It's Clara. 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 A young mother sings a lullaby to her baby as the working men prepare for a game of craps. Alright. There we are. Continue. Um yeah, so I've basically just heard Fantasia, uh, that version, and then the version mm-hmm. from the 1993 TV movie that I watched. Sure. Well, it's Which is very too, operatic, actually, very different from Fantasia. It's such an opera ballad, right? And like our, my, I recognize my favorite versions are truly very different takes on the song. Um, Audra is interesting because she uh, was trained as an opera singer, but has also crossed over to sing uh, sort of more contemporary like pop ballads via musical theater. So uh, she's... I mean, that's, that's a whole discussion, too. Audra McDonald in that role. I heard it was really magnificent. Uh, I'm a big Audra fan. It should be known. <laughs> well, I have a fun game. I Okay, okay how great. about this? We, we'll play for you, the audience, um, mm-hmm. a tiny snippet of um, the Fantasia version and then a tiny great. snippet of just, like, a really opera-sounding version to be determined at a later date. Uh, just so you can great. sort of see the difference. All right, go. Jumping, and the castle is high. 
and we're back. Um, Great. You should all know that I did just get to hear Jeremy Berman's version of Summertime, and it was something special, and uh, I I feel privileged that I uh, experienced it singularly. I, I, I've, con- <laughs> I've considered uh, cutting all of these like snippets we play like out of years of copyright infringement and just only singing for the podcast. But this I, is a discussion I we've had. <laughs> I mean, but I think it's useful for, like, knowing the history of Broadway right. theater to sort of hear the things as they were. So, like, that's – I'm going to try to keep in – I mean, I listen to a lot of other podcasts that are also playing snippets, and um, I'm pretty sure what we're doing is fair use. I actually happen to be, like, a copyright lawyer. So, so, uh, <laughs> sort of what you do. But, uh, yeah, great. yeah. Uh, but, yeah, anyway, um, maybe at some point you get to hear my, my singing voice. But I, yeah, I, I, I say I do, if we have I, a yeah. – if we have a slow week, you know, if we have a slow week on the podcast, maybe we, maybe we intercut some, uh, some of those, you know, just to or keep just things interesting. Spe- could do like a whole special. Yeah, thing. it could be a special. All right. In our future. Anyway, back to Porgy and Bess. So yeah, we so talked about summertime. Is, yeah. Great. That's the opening. That's great. Um, then we, so I mean, that's sort of the, the entry point for the whole show, right? Is this lullaby. Um, super interesting. It's actually making me think of... Old Man River, I was just re-listening to our first episode, um, and we talked about that song uh, being, uh, you know, reprised later in the show. Summertime follows that same sort of format, um, although uh, Old Man River's not an overture. Yeah. Sort of like, it isn't about the plot, but it really puts you in this world. It really makes you feel like you're Yeah, right, that's a good Um, way to describe it. Yeah, I think it sort of, like, essentializes where we are. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what my favorite song in the whole show is. Um, it's My Man's Gone Now, which is sung by Serena. So um, um, the, the boyfriend of, um, of Bess, oh, what's his name? Crown. His name is Crown. He kills a guy. Uh, the guy who Crown kills after the game of craps, uh, his, there, he's sort of uh, lying there. His body's lying there, and the whole community's mourning. They're having this funeral. And his wife sings this really mournful song called My Man's Gone Now, which is just really, uh, uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, mm. I guess let's play a clip of that too. Great, yeah, let's do it. Here. Okay, here, here you go. And we're back. Um, I didn't even yeah, try to no, that one. It's, it's <laughs> um, um, 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's a gorgeous song. I really, I really, yeah, I is. really love that song. Um, I remember when I first saw the show, I was very young, um, and I remember hearing Best You Is My Woman Now was probably my favorite song. Um, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the first time we sort of get, like, full-on just Porgy singing for sort of, like, his own, his own Good number? Song? Best You Is My Woman Now? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, like... Because he sings, because, I mean, especially in the version I saw with the rest of the team, right. like every word he it's says sung. is sung. Uh, but, yeah, that might be the first time where he really just, it's like him doing his thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Or is that, no, actually, you know, before that, it's I Got Plenty Oh, you're right. You I Got Plenty correct. of Nothing, nothing Plenty yeah. For Me. Uh, fair, all right, fair enough. Yeah. My, if my memory does not serve me. But I remember, I remember um, the version I saw, I think, was in... Florida. I saw it with my my grandmother and my family. Um, I think it was a touring production, um, and they had Porgy on, um, sort of something in between crutches and the uh, you know drawn cart. He was on like a little wooden uh, sort of like a platform on wheels that went under one of his legs. So he was sort of pulling himself around the stage. Um, which, oh, from a technical perspective, I'm like, God, he must have had great vocal support to be able to to uh to sing opera uh from that position but i just remember that song just just breaking my heart uh like it's so beautiful and hard to watch porgy uh fall in love with bess and i feel like you know you know things are gonna go wrong like it reminds me of i don't know romeo and juliet in that way that's probably a terrible comparison i'm working on a romeo and juliet right now so that's where my head is but this sense of like you just know it's not going to turn out well for porgy and you watch him you know, finally get Bess uh, sort of against all odds because of these terrible things that happen. They end up together. Uh, and then you just watch her get, uh, well, we should talk about this. I don't know. Tempted is probably not the right word. Um, but, you know, forcibly taken from him. And uh, uh, it's just it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Maybe, maybe let's talk about that. Let's talk about... Actually, you know, it's funny. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, we, we've been talking so much... We've been talking so much about... Um the historical mm-hmm. context of this show and sort of critiquing it from that level that I'm surprised we've made it this far uh, before sure. I say something. Uh, please don't get upset at me, any listeners. I don't like Porky and Bess. You don't like Porky and Bess. And I, don't, I, I do not like it. And I don't I don't think mm-hmm. I even me- have mentioned this to Hannah yet. I yeah, thought it was is, really boring. my first time hearing it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was too long. It was really boring. Um... And, okay, so I don't want to be the sort of person who just is like, oh, I hate opera. Because, like, I feel like there's so many people in the world who are like, oh, I hate musical theater, or I hate video games. Like, people who, or I hate comic books, people who criticize the entire medium of entertainment. And to those people, I always think, like, that just means you haven't experienced this medium enough. Um, like, you you just need to, li- like, you just haven't read the right stuff. You haven't seen sure. the right musicals. It's, it's, it's a very, like, I, I always think to myself, like, that's not a valid opinion to say you don't like an entire medium. Um... Yes. So I really, like, for my self-conception of myself as, like, you know, very, you know, like, like high-minded, scholarly person, I want, I truly want to be someone who likes opera. And I hate, I hate when people just discount an entire medium. But sure. listen, I have seen, like, four operas, maybe, this being one of them. I don't like opera. I, I don't, I don't well, like opera. I, I, it's, it's so <laughs> slow. It's, it takes so long. And I just, and I don't like the style of music. Um, it, it, like the plot takes a million years for anything to happen. And I just, I, I'm not into it. I'm sorry. And, and my, my the whole, um, Aunt Polly, Uncle Arthur, if you're listening to this, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. My, my uncle's in opera. 
conductor. I was, see, I was thinking of kind Rory of a big Pelsu. deal. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Rory like, Pelsu, I'm, I'm, if, I'm you're, so... if you're listening. Uh, Jeremy Berman doesn't like opera, uh, and it should be known. Do you um, remember Rory? <laughs> I remember Rory. Um, yeah, Gabrielle, my cousin Gabrielle, I'm so sorry. Like, they're all, they're all opera people. <laughs> all right, um, so Jeremy doesn't smooth. like I, opera. I feel so bad. That's I feel really bad. Uh, I, like, I want to like opera. I just don't like opera. I'm sorry. I, mean, I, I wish I could. I truly want to. Truly a Philistine, but that's fine. Am I pronouncing, is it Philistine or Philistine? That's the real question today. They're probably both acceptable. All right. I, think, I mean, I the irony. Philistine, but, but I, I didn't like, I didn't register as you mispronouncing anything until you brought up the pronunciation. Correctly. Great. Well, I'm glad I brought I it up. All right. right. So anyway, getting back on track, you don't like opera. Um, sure. Yeah, I hear that. Um, I've seen a couple operas. Um, I saw The Magic Flute when I was young. I think I saw uh, La Boheme when I was young. Yeah, it's like, it's very expressionist. Um, what I'm thinking about now is like, there's a trend in, in uh, opera right now, like as opera kind of struggles to still survive in the theater canon, opera is just getting weirder. Um, and so a lot of people who encounter opera now are like encountering essentially like weird, uh, like abstract art pieces, right? Like they're, they're taking these old forms and they're just making them stranger. Uh, and I say that all because I think Porgy and Bess in a way feels like part of that conversation because it, it feels like such an outlier as an opera I think is worth recognizing which isn't to say you should like it more because <laughs> um, uh, it is still it's still in so many ways an opera but um, you know it's not it's not a normal opera I'm not a regular mom I'm a cool mom um, yeah <laughs> but anyway uh, yeah I don't know I mean I hear that I do think it's certainly slow I think it's not four hours worth of good material <laughs> um, but I don't know. I'm kind of a sucker for the story, I think. Uh, you know, just like, uh, I, lo I love rooting for Porgy, and then it's just, it breaks my heart when he doesn't get what he wants. Uh, but yeah, all right, you don't like Porgy and Bess. It's pretty slow, it's pretty long, yeah. and the opera's, uh, and it's not your thing. I hear that, I hear that. I don't, I don't. And I, I have a that. theory, I have a theory that uh, American musical theater might be responsible for ruining opera for audiences. I guess like this if you look at if you look at opera in the context of like it's sort of like a classical music style, but there's just mm -hmm. people singing and there's a plot. So like if you think of it as like would you rather go just see a concert where people are just playing an orchestra just playing classical music, um, and classical that means it's such an over it's it's an overbroad term like that mm -hmm. never mind whatever I'm not gonna get into that. <laughs> the point is um, orchestral music. Um, mm -hmm. If you'd rather, I would rather, I suppose, go see an opera than maybe a concert. I don't know if that's actually true, but like I could see one saying that. So if you look at it in that context, it's like, oh, you get the awesome genre of music that you like and a plot. But instead, if you compare it to musical theater, it's like, okay, either way I'm getting music and either way I'm getting a plot. But with musical right. theater, the whole thing is going to take two hours and it's going to zip along at a fast pace. And with opera, like, it's going to take like an hour for someone to like make a simple decision. Um, right. <laughs> well, it's interesting too. I mean, it kind of ties into like part of why I probably did so poorly is like, I think people who wanted to see an opera certainly didn't want to see the story of Porgy and Bess, right? I mean, opera was um, at that point, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, like mostly, uh, uh, you know, created and enjoyed by like very uh, white, wealthier audiences, right? So they took opera as a form and then, mapped that onto or mapped onto it this story of a poor community of african-american people in the carolinas um and like i think there's just like a disparity between 
like story and audience or something. Like I think it, it doesn't surprise me that it did so poorly. I guess because uh, you know at any end of the spectrum, like people weren't going to like what the show was was bringing to the table because of that weird mashup. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. and yeah. I think on the other side of that coin, that's probably why it's been such a hit lately. Right. Because amongst people who do like opera, and there are a lot of them, uh, many of them are in my own family, sorry again, um, <laughs> if you're looking for an American opera, an opera that's right. very uniquely American as opposed to you know, the European sure. tradition, this is very American. It's bluesy. Um, so yeah, it's written if by a all... white Jewish guy. What, what, yeah. what could be more so, American, this strange problematic opera? <laughs> Yeah, so if you're coming from, you already like opera, you're American, you already like opera, like, this is our opera, this is an American opera. Um, so I can see why opera companies do it so much, because from their perspective, they're going to do opera anyway, this one's American. But a musical theater company, right. they have a million shows to choose from, most of which are shorter and faster, and you don't need as much talent to put them on, so... Right. Um, I can see why it went from being, like, a not well-liked musical opera leanings to being a well-liked opera with musical leanings. Sidebar, brief sidebar, um, probably worth checking out, people who are interested in this episode. They just made an opera based on, or based, I think, around the life of Charlie Parker. Um, I may be wrong here, but I believe it's called Birdland, and it uh, played in Philly last year, uh, where I'm podcasting from. Uh, and uh, I heard it was very good from people. Anyway, Opera Philadelphia, Birdland. Um, just sort of thinking about uh, uh, that feels like it's sort certainly following in the tradition of Porgy and Bess, uh, if nothing else, in that it's opera uh, telling the story of um, an Afri African American protagonist. So potentially worth checking out. Could be interesting. Have not heard it. Awesome. Is it like it premiered in Philly, but is it going to be elsewhere? I like think so. I think it actually premiered somewhere else before Philly. I think truly don't have all the information. But have not listened, and now that we're doing this podcast, I'm going to remember to go listen after we're done. Okay. What's the name of that one more time for our listeners and for me? I believe it's Birdland. Birdland, which is Birdland. also the name of a great jazz club in New York, Birdland. Well, because they call Charlie Parker the bird. Got it. Or okay. bird, to be more specific. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, Porgy and Bess. Um, I want to talk about, we've been skirting around it a little bit, uh, Bess's journey, right, and sort of her... Uh, you know, quote unquote, fall from grace in the show. Um, why don't you start us off? Oh, why don't you start us off? Uh, All right. <laughs> seems like you have some things you want to say. Well, no, okay. What I was struck by is when I saw the show as a young person, um, you know, there's a very difficult scene uh, when Bess sort of finally does go off with, um, what the hell is his name? The name of her, her, Crown. her sort of ex lover. Crown. Crown, thank you. When yeah. she goes off with Crown, um, I remember it being essentially like a sexual assault scene. Um, and uh, in the Wikipedia description, they do not describe it as such. They describe him as sort of um, uh, forcing her to, to kiss him, and then they sort of go off into the woods, and it's all very cut and dried. Um, and, yeah, no, I think it's a really challenging and problematic scene. Um, and I think those are my thoughts on it. Yeah, um, it's... it's uh... When you read on Wikipedia, there's like a plot summary of what the show's supposed to be. Because all I've only seen the 1993 version, mm -hmm. um, where it also uh, looked pretty rapey. I guess it wasn't. It was supposed to be he comes up and she says, "No, no, get away from me," and he kisses her without her permission. And then she sort of like 
melts and then voluntarily has sex with him again. Um, so I don't know. It, it might be sort of a directorial thing. Like maybe some directors make her into it. Some directors make it a rape. I don't know which is the better choice. Like, Right. I mean, it's it gets into like a bigger question, too, I think, about like, what is this show's opinion on Bess? And I think that is directorial. Um, you know, I think like there's a version where this uh, production is very judgmental of Bess. And I think that's the version where she sort of, uh, quote unquote, does, uh, you know, d- does Porgy wrong by, you know, pursuing the drug dealer, pursuing her her sort of ex-lover. Um, and that's the version in which she says some agency over her choices, I think, um, where we can sort of like blame her for going back to them versus the version where um, it's more forced upon her. But I don't know, even hearing myself say that, um, I don't know how I feel about that. I think it's I think it's complicated. And, um, you know, I think in general, like I think judging Bess is uh, problematic. You know, I don't think she is yeah. a character who has a lot of agency in this world. And I think that's like, in a lot of ways, the point of the story um, is, you know, it's not going to work out um, uh, for all those reasons. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's almost tough to find a, a message in this. Yeah, sure. I think that's uh, definitely like a criticism of the show, perhaps, that I would have um, is a little bit. It's like, to what end did we just watch... Uh, you know, these horrible things happen to this woman and this man, and we watched her be uh, certainly abused, if not um, uh, completely assaulted. Uh, and, yeah, it's like, to what end? Why, why do we need to show that? Why do we need to tell that story? Um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And yeah. a lot of musicals and movies and stories where something really bad happens to someone, a tragedy, there's at right. least a reason. It's saying, like, this is the lesson. Like, don't, like, they had hubris. You shouldn't do this. Or, right. or this is, like, a... Not that everything has to have a lesson or a moral, but there's usually some point you sort of leave like, oh, I get it. That's why this happened. But with this show, it's like all this terrible stuff happens to people who don't really deserve it. And then <laughs> yeah. and then you just leave and you're like, well, that was a show. Well, that was terrible. Right. I mean, it's also making me think now actually about, you know, it's, it's Porgy and Bess. It's not Bess and Porgy. And so like, you know, this character who... Uh, of Bess, like, we don't really get to hear a lot from her perspective uh, in the show, which I think is a problem as well. Um, I mean, she does have her her numbers, but, you know, I think we, we end with, uh, you know, Porgy suffering, right? Like, I feel like the show gives... I think that's an F law in the script, and, you know, I think that can be certainly addressed by a good production or a good director, but, like, it, it, we mostly give focus to... Porgy, I think. Um, and I, I think the Audrey McDowell version did. A wonderful character, but. Yeah, from what I've read in the reviews, and neither of us have actually seen this version, but it's, sure. it's my understanding they did sort of expand on the best character and right. give her sort of more weight, make her into a that more. That doesn't surprise me. It's Diane Arbus, person. you said? Yeah. The, yeah. Dan Diane Arbus directing? Yeah. yeah. Diane. Oh, dang it. <laughs> Paulus. Right. Um, she's wonderful. I've seen, I've seen a lot of her other work, um, even though I can't remember her name. Um, yeah, and I feel like she's she's great with. She tends to give women focus on stage in a way that I really appreciate. She was she was the Pippin so. revival, right? Yeah, she was the Pippin revival. Um, she's from the ART, so uh, she's doing great stuff over there. Um, she's 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 a real winner, I'd say. Yeah, cool. am I right? Did I make that up? Wait, keep talking. I'm gonna go. Wait, I, I have a Diane Paula story. Actually, this is uh, um. <laughs> So I was uh, telling one of my law school friends <laughs> that I'm doing this podcast, I'm doing uh, Porky and Bess, um, and she said, oh, um, 
I took an entire seminar for a whole semester. She went to Harvard, my friend. Um, what? I'm just reading this now. Yeah, this uh, is so true. She also was from the ART. I was correct. Correct. Uh, I grew up in Massachusetts, so these are things I should know. Uh, anyway, you were telling your friend. Yeah, so I, I mentioned that I'm doing this, and my friend said, oh, I spent an entire semester doing a seminar just about Porgy and Bess, and it was taught by Diane Paulus. Um, what? And I was like, wow, I was going to say at first that sounds like a really boring semester, but then when you said Diane Paulus, now it sounds like a really exciting semester. And she replied, mm-hmm. no, it was still a really boring semester. So that's, that's my story. Interesting. Also, you know, questions like why is Diane Paulus particularly interested in Porgy and Bess would be interested to hear about that. Perhaps that's something I will research after we're done. Yeah, I think I think the seminar was like after she did the show. Sure, I'm sure actually, she had, had thoughts on it. No, actually, I don't think so, because the show was 2011, and I think my friend graduated college in 2011 and took this class prior to it. So she probably taught the seminar like while she was working on the show. I know Dan Paul is involved with Harvard a lot. I, I know another guy from Harvard right. who uh, took, like, who knew her. So I guess she's, like, all over the cool. campus. I mean, that makes okay. sense. I, I wonder, this is a tidbit also, I wonder how frequently uh, the show's directed by a, uh, a, a woman as the, the lead directorial voice. Probably infrequently, just because there are lead directors getting success yeah. on Broadway in general. Well, yes, and that's that's a bigger, a bigger, a bigger discussion. As we move forward in time, I'm sure we'll continue to talk about. Yes. So. Uh, um, <laughs> anyway, okay. So we talked about Bass. We talked about summertime. What what else do we feel like we need to? I mean, I I feel I feel kind of show. ready to start giving out the scores. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about yeah, you. me too. Actually, yeah, I feel like I feel like we've we've. Uh, talked about the things I know I want to talk about. I mean, it is truly a three to four hour show, so there are no limit of things we could discuss. Um, all right. All right, cool. So first up, was this important? We will each give the show a score from one to ten. Uh, well, so just so you all know, we're each going to give this, the show a score from one to ten on was it important, was it good for its time, and is it good now? So first, was it important? I have a score in mind. Great. Um, this is hard. Um, was it important for its time? I'll, I can go um, first. Um, I gave it a six. Sure. So I gave Great. it a, a six out of I'm gonna ten. Give it a six, I'm going to give it a six and a half. Okay. That's, I don't think we've done half points yeah. yet, but now we're there. That's We're there now. We're there. I felt like I wanted to give it a seven, but I didn't want to give it a seven because I think that that's, that felt wrong. Yeah. Some six felt a little low, so six and a half. Perfect. My reasoning is that um, it was, you know, it's like a very new type of show. Um, there's been a lot of sort of semi-musical, semi-operas since then, a lot of more operatic yeah. Broadway shows. You could look at West Side Story, you can look at Sweeney Todd. Um, there's been a lot of stuff like that, and this was sort of their first. But I don't know to what extent this caused any of that. I think all of those would have happened sort of independent of this show. This, it wasn't like this came out and suddenly kicked off a whole new era of, sure. So I, I don't know, like, it, the fact that we remember it now and that people sort of think of it as, like, the half opera, half musical of, like, all time, it, it clearly had right. an <laughs> impact. I, I'm even starting to think six. Yeah, I mean, I'm high, coming but... from a similar place. No, I'm coming from a similar place. I think it's, like, worth recognizing the um, strangeness of the mashup, right? We've been talking about yeah. that throughout this episode, and I think that is revolutionary. Um, 
and was crazy revolutionary for its time. Um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly contemporary shows that are doing the same thing right now to great acclaim, like when you combine genres. Um, and so I think that for that reason, like it's worth, it's, uh, that's, that's why my score is as high as it is. Okay. Uh, this next one's yeah. going to be fun. <laughs> was it good for its time? Right. I mean, I, I, so I, time, be, I, it, I oh man, that's hard. <laughs> so, so was it good for its time? But also, like, this still takes into account our own personal subjective opinions. Like, right. So, everyone, please forgive me for what I'm about to say. But uh, if you if you have <laughs> if you have a score, you can go first. All right. I mean, was it good for its time? I'm going to give it a five. Um, <laughs> yours is going to be low. Um, I'm going to give it a five because. Um, you know, I think, like, it's not higher because we recognized it was so long. Um, and there were so many, like, issues, uh, you know, just, like, deeply offensive and certainly racist in a number of ways. So, like, I, for that reason, I'm like, it really can't, I can't give it a higher score. Um, you know, I think, like, the music is, is beautiful. Um, and um, for the sort of a similar reason to wasn't important, that's also why the score is as high as it is. I mean, it was um, this sort of strange, huge, messy... Uh, musical. All right. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't need to apologize for giving it a score as high as five. People, <laughs> people love it. Uh, I think I give it a one. On one. Oh level. my! Our first one. Wow. All uh, right. I mean, that's I harsh, but it's just a not, I'm gonna feel that way about other I think shows. It's not a good show. And back when it came out, people thought it was really racist. So one for me. Right. So I mean, if at its time people thought it was racist, that's a terrible sign. This is that's, one of those, this is a bizarre and unusual show and that people actually think it's less racist now than they did in the 1950s. Yeah, that's unique. <laughs> yeah, it, probably unique. Um, okay, I guess let's go into, right. is it good? No I'll, let, I'll, okay. let, I'll let you go first again. I mean, I don't know, right. I mean, so to answer that question, right, like, it's interesting because we've talked about so many different versions. So I guess in my mind, I'm like trying to essentialize like what... Invest is um, and keeping in mind that there's lots of different ways to do it, lots of different uh, even cuts of the script. So, is it good overall today? Is it good? One out of ten. Um, I would give it a. I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna give it a five and a half. I'm gonna give it a five and a half. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's not my. Th- my thing and that like it's not uh my favorite type of show i also recognize like that's a matter of taste uh but taste is taste um yeah i wish i'd seen the audrey mcdonald version i think if i had i'd give it a certainly like a higher rating because i've heard that that production was pretty spectacular um but based on my encounters with it and everything we've talked about today i feel i feel uh solid about five and a half all right um so actually i was i was incorrect uh you gave a 6.5 last weekend at 3.5 so we've been in the oh. 3.5 world for a while anyway um my score for is it good is it two i gave it was it good one i gave it is it good two because i think it's it was bad it still is bad but at least now it seems a little bit less racist so i move it up to a two for the present day so right my grand total for today is nine right. your grand total is 17 that means porky and best gets a grand total of 26 and just to remind the previous shows Showboat got 42, Anything Goes got 37. So this is in third place by quite a bit right now. Quite a bit. All right, all right. Well, there we are, getting right down to it. Um, Jeremy, what's up next week? Next week we are doing Pal Joey, a 1940 musical by Rogers and Hart. Rogers, Richard Rogers of Rogers and Hammerstein fame, um, with his old 
lyricist, uh, Mr. Hart. <laughs> Mr. Hart, yes. how surprising. Yeah. Um, cool, I've never seen or heard Pal Joey, so I look forward to uh, checking that out this week. I wrote a paper about it in college, so that was fun. Uh, of course you did. For, that for, doesn't uh, surprise me at all. For all David right. Fox's <laughs> class, History of American Musical Theater, shout out to David Fox. Fox, yeah, again, just truly not surprising. Um, all right, great, excellent. Don't forget that you can get every episode of our show on your phone by subscribing to Broadway Binge on any podcast app. You can see pictures, episodes, and more on our website, broadwaybinge.podbean.com, and follow us on Twitter at Broadway underscore binge. We'd also really appreciate it if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes, which will really help us to get new listeners. Thank you all for listening to Broadway Binge, and we will see you next week for Pal Joey. Bye.